All right, well, good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. This is a new arrangement. It's a new setting. I'm used to sitting on the balcony behind me. So I guess I'll have to stand the entire time, which is fine. But we are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews. And I guess the, a couple of things that will be different. Number one is that um, we don't have a microphone for comments or um, scripture reading. I'll still take comments, though. But for, the, for scripture reading, I'll just read the, the passages myself. But if there's questions or comments, we'll still do that. Definitely, we want to be interactive. And um, I'll repeat it for the recording's sake. So why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer, and we will get started here. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. Please bless us now as we study your word, as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. May you give us special wisdom and understanding. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are finishing up Hebrews chapter 9, and last week we got through most of Hebrews 9. But the most important part of Hebrews 9 is the last five or six verses of the chapter. And we spent most of our time explaining what the holy place and the most holy place are and how throughout Hebrews chapter 9, um, with the exception of verse 3, the, the two apartments are described together. So, for example, in um, Hebrews 9, verse 8, when it says the Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, the Greek word for holiest of all is tahagia, which most accurately translated is holy places which you see in verse 24 of chapter 9, if you have a King James, it does translate that same word, holy places. So the only place that it's different is verse 3 of chapter 9, where it's hagia, hagion, so that is indicating the most holy place. So we kind of went through those points and discussed the significance of that last week. And what we see is that while the earthly sanctuary was still standing, this is verse 8, the, the heavenly sanctuary could not yet be made manifest. And it's in the heavenly sanctuary that Christ becomes a high priest of good things to come. And it's with his blood that he takes his blood into the sanctuary to make atonement for our sins. This is where we're going to pick up things here in verse 23. So starting in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Here Paul says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So when Paul says patterns of things in the heaven, what's he talking about? the earthly sanctuary. It's the pattern of things in the heaven, right? And when he says that the pattern should be purified with these, what is the word these referring to? If you go back just a few verses, it's the blood 
So starting in verse 20, you see the blood of the Testament. It was sprinkled on the tabernacle, all the vessels of the ministry. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood. So with the blood of the sacrifices of animals, the earthly sanctuary was purified. But in verse 23, it says, it was necessary that the patterns should be purified with blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the heavenly sanctuary is going to be purified, just as the earthly sanctuary was purified with blood, so is the heavenly sanctuary. And what is the heavenly sanctuary being purified with? If you look at verse 23, the wording is with better sacrifices than the blood of animals. So what's the better sacrifice? It's Christ's sacrifice, his blood. Now, let's think about this. What is the blood of Christ going to do to the heavenly sanctuary? According to Hebrews 9, it's purify. And some of you are one step ahead of my next point. But the blood of Christ will purify the heavenly sanctuary. And as we look at the earthly sanctuary service, once a year on the Day of Atonement, that was called the cleansing of the sanctuary in the earthly service. And obviously the heavenly sanctuary therefore needs to be purified or cleansed as well. And it's interesting that Hebrews 9 shows us what the heavenly sanctuary is purified or cleansed by. It's with a better sacrifice, the blood of Christ. So that sets the stage then for verse 24. Verse 24 says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. So Christ hasn't entered into the earthly sanctuary, which has the holy place and the most holy place, because he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's not from the Levitical priesthood. We've studied this already. So Christ is not entered into the earthly sanctuary that has a holy place and a most holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the truth. So notice this, the earthly sanctuary, which has a holy place and a most holy place, is a figure of the true. So what do you think about the heavenly sanctuary? It also has a holy place and a most holy place. You see that? So in verse 24, when it says Christ has not entered into the holy places, holy places is plural to designate holy place and most holy place. And that is a figure of the true sanctuary in heaven, which has a holy place and a most holy place. That's where Christ has entered. So he has entered not into the earthly sanctuary, but into heaven itself, which remember the earthly sanctuary was a figure of that. So Christ entered into the heavenly sanctuary, which has a holy place and a most holy place. So he has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So... This is what we see through verse 24. Christ has entered into the heavenly sanctuary. And we know from Hebrews 8 that he is the high priest and mediator of a better covenant. So the earthly sanctuary was the sanctuary of the old covenant. The heavenly sanctuary is the sanctuary of a better covenant, which was established with a better sacrifice. 
So this is Christ as our high priest. He has a better ministry mediating on behalf of a better covenant because he gave a better sacrifice. So that's where Christ is now. So if you go throughout the book of Hebrews, it's always better, it's better, it's better because of Christ. He's better than the angels. He's better than man. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Levitical priests. He's the mediator of a better covenant. He offered a better sacrifice, and he's in a better sanctuary. So he's in heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Picking up in verse 25, then, it says, Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. And again, the translation of this would best be rendered holy places. So, <clears throat> continuing in verse 26, because this ties the thought together. Verse 26 is, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. And I'll stop there. So, Christ, how many times did he offer himself as a sacrifice? One time, and you can see that in Hebrews 10, verse 12, it says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Okay, right. So, one sacrifice for sin. And so what Paul is saying, look, according to the earthly sanctuary, the high priest would take blood from animals on a daily basis into the holy place. And then every year, they would take blood into the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary. So this happened day after day, year after year, the daily service every day of the year, the yearly service once a year, year by year continually. But Christ didn't need to do this every year. He did it one time because he had a better sacrifice. And it was such a good sacrifice, he only needed to do it one time. So with that better sacrifice that only needed to happen once, Christ enters into the holy places of the sanctuary in heaven. And verse 26 says, look, if he was a priest according to the earthly service, he would have been offering himself often since the foundation of the world. He would, have ha be, he would be making a sacrifice on a yearly basis. And Paul is saying, obviously, that didn't need to happen. He didn't need to suffer often since the foundation of the world. It was one time. Now, notice the last half of verse 26. So we start off that he must have often suffered since the foundation of the world if he had been according to the earthly service. But notice the last half, it says, But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time on this phrase. Now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, <clears throat> obviously we understand that the sacrifice of Christ occurred in what year? It was 31 AD, right? Christ died in the midst of the 70th week, which was 31 AD. And that is when he made the sacrifice. Now, when you look at the book of Hebrews, 
in chapter 1, the very first verse, it says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners has, has spoken to us by his son in these last days. And in, and that, that's when we get to verse 2, where he says, in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. If you look at the book of Hebrews, Hebrews was important for the Hebrew Christians who had accepted Christ. They needed to accept the message of Hebrews because the Hebrews in Jerusalem were still keeping the ceremonial law. And if they continued to do that and if they continued to look to the temple, they would have the tendency to stay there when the Roman army surrounded the city and ignore the warning that Christ gave them in Matthew chapter 24. And in Matthew chapter 24, Christ ties in the destruction of Jerusalem to the second coming. You see what Christ does there. So in the minds of the Jews, the destruction of Jerusalem is the last days. Because in their mind, when Jesus gave that story, they said, you know, what shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? And he talks about the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Christ, which happened very far apart. So when Paul says at the very beginning of Hebrews 1 that God has spoken to us in these last days, for the Hebrew people of that time, their last days, he wrote this in 66 AD, just a few years before Jerusalem was destroyed as a fulfillment of prophecy in Matthew 24. But if you study the book of Hebrews carefully, the book of Hebrews is also written for God's last day people. And you see that when you get to the the climax in Hebrews 12 where God has a group of people who run the race with patience, they get to the end of the race, they have the faith of Jesus and they've had patience and they have the new covenant experience from Hebrews 8 of having God's law written in their hearts and minds. This is a description of the 144,000. So in these last days, it's especially for God's people to save them from the destruction of Jerusalem, but it's also for God's people who will be part of his last day people just before he comes. So when Paul says, now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, you could say, well, Jesus died in 31 AD, about 39 years before Jerusalem was destroyed. And that was for the people of that time, a last day experience. And it was a fulfillment of prophecy of Matthew 24. So Christ died in that time period. But when you look at the sanctuary service, <clears throat> when the sacrifice occurred in the courtyard, did that put away sin? It did not. The blood from that sacrifice was then taken to the holy place. And then on the day of atonement, the sins were blotted out with blood. So ultimately on the day of atonement, sin was blotted out. And when you look at Hebrews 9, when it says Christ once in the end of the world hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, the process began for putting away sin when Christ died on the cross. But when you understand the sanctuary service, sin will not be put away in the record book until it has been blotted out on the Day of Atonement. 
And it's interesting the language Paul uses here. It says, now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Was Christ's death on the cross the end of the world? It was in the time period that was sort of the end of the world for the Jewish people as they knew it, but it wasn't the end of the world, so to speak. Um, when you look at what Paul says next, it helps us to understand what he is saying when he says, now once in the, in the end of the world. In verse 27, he says, and as, is, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Paul is making the point, look, death is followed by judgment. Now, why is Paul saying that? Why is Paul saying death is followed by judgment? What does that have to do with Christ's death? What Paul is saying, look, because Christ died, there can be a judgment. When we die, there's no more, we go, we go to the grave, we sleep in the grave, but at some point in the future after our death, there is a judgment. And that is true because Christ died as our sacrifice. So Christ appears to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Well, what else? Well, when men die, after this, they face the judgment. And just as Christ died, after his death, there will be a judgment. And in that judgment, that will be the time when sin will be put away. This is what Paul is saying. So Christ appears to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He will put away sin sometime after his death in the judgment. And then verse 28 makes this even more clear. It says, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. When did Christ bear our sins? He bore our sins on the cross. And it says, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. When does he appear the second time? At the second coming. So Christ bears our sins. That's his death on the cross. Christ comes back the second time. What happened in between his death and the second coming? The judgment occurred. So he died after this, the judgment, and then he comes back the second time. So it's interesting, you can see the sequence of eschatology and of salvation. Christ dies for our sins, after this the judgment, and then he comes back the second time. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. And how does he appear the second time? He appears without sin. Why does he appear without sin? Our sins have been put away or blotted out. And where did that happen? In the judgment. And speak up so people can hear you. Yes. Actually, it's in the text before that. It says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Uh-huh. Uh, 
Interesting. So Matthew 25, 34, which references 31 through 34. So you can look that up. Matthew 25, 31 through 34, which talks about Christ coming in his glory, seated on the throne. Now, so here's what we happen, have here. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. He appears the second time without sin unto salvation. And the sequence, according to verses 26, 27, and 28, is Christ appears to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Because he died, there can be a judgment. And it's in the judgment that our sins are put away or, or blotted out so that when he comes back the second time, he will be without sin because there is no record of sin and he is no longer bearing our sins. And according to the sanctuary service, you understand when the high priest blotted out the sins of God's people in the most holy place, he then comes out into the courtyard, takes the sins of God's people that have been blotted out and puts them on the head of the scapegoat. Satan is the scapegoat. He's led out into the wilderness and that is where he will be during the thousand years between the second coming and the third coming. So let's break down verse 28 a little bit more carefully though. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, but he's not gonna bear the sins of a certain group of people when he comes back the second time. Who are the people that he is no longer bearing the sins of? According to verse 28. Those that look for him. So specifically, those that look for him, he will come back the second time without sin. Is there anywhere else in the book of Hebrews that describes a, bit, a group of people that look for Jesus? How about Hebrews 12? <clears throat> Hebrews 12 verses one and two. And if you notice, as we've gone through this book, Everything keeps going back to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. That is the, the climax of Hebrews. So Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. So remember that group of people who look for him and he appears the second time without sin. Here's a group of people who are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That's where he bore the sins of many, right? That's where he offered himself as a sacrifice. So we look to him as our sacrifice, but we also look to him he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we also look to Jesus in the sanctuary in heaven. So we see him as our sacrifice. He endured the cross, despising the shame. There's, that's where he is our sacrifice. But we also see him on the right hand of the throne of God as our high priest. Now, there's a number of things that we could say with respect to this, but 
why does Christ come back the second time without sin unto salvation for a group of people? Well, here's why. The group of people who looked at Jesus as the author and finisher of their faith have laid aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset them. So at some point in their life, these people were sinners. They were breaking God's law. And because of that record, as we've studied in the book of Romans, they deserve the wrath of God and the judgment. But because they have accepted Christ's sacrifice and received forgiveness for sins, and more than that, they have also looked to Jesus as their merciful and faithful high priest, who was tempted in all points like as they are, yet without sin. They look at him as their example and say, he can help me to run this race that he ran. He's the forerunner. In Hebrews chapter 6, Christ is our forerunner. So we look to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, as someone who's run this race ahead of us. And the, how do we get started? Well, we look to Jesus as the author. As the author, he helps us to get started. And I was talking to some people recently. Sometimes the hardest part is getting started. Because what happens when you get started? You lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset you. Now, if you're running a marathon, do you wait till halfway through the Los Angeles Marathon to take off every weight that could weigh you down? It's like, you know what, I'm going to keep some of this stuff because I like it. Uh, maybe I'll keep my iPod and a radio and my backpack and whatever. You know, it's not a bad thing, but I'm going to keep it and we'll see what happens until I get to some point in the race. And then about halfway through, you're like, you know, this just isn't working out. I'm going to get rid of this. I mean, if you're a smart runner, you get rid of that at the beginning of the race, or you'll never have a chance. So the hardest part sometimes is getting started. But I'll tell you this, the reason why Jesus is described as the author of our faith is because that is connected to the beginning point of the race, which is Jesus enduring the cross, despising the shame. So that's where Jesus is our sacrifice. So the hard part is getting started, but, he, but it becomes much easier when we see that Jesus gave up everything and died for our sins. So I'm going to keep my cherished idols and try to run the same race Jesus ran? There's no way. But if we see the love of Christ for us, we'll say, why would I hang on to these cherished idols in my life? I'll give them up to you, Lord. Please help me to lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset me. Come into my life. So Jesus, he helps us to get started as the author of our faith. But not only that, the Bible tells us that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it or finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus will help us get to the finish line as well. And when you get to the finish line, Remember, Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's also the forerunner, so we're running the same race that he ran. When you get to the finish line, what kind of faith do you have? Jesus is the finisher of your faith, so you have the faith of Jesus. So you've laid aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset you. You have patience. 
you get to the finish line, you have the faith of Jesus. And remember, Jesus seated on the right hand of God is the author and finisher of our faith in Hebrews 12. He's our high priest in Hebrews 8. And in Hebrews 8, as our high priest, he writes his law into our hearts and minds. So in Hebrews 12, as the author and finisher of our faith, he gives us patience and finishes our faith so that we have his faith. And in Hebrews 8, as our high priest, he writes his law into our hearts and minds. So therefore, we're keeping his commandments because he wrote his law into our hearts and minds. So now you have a group of people who have patience, the faith of Jesus, and they keep the commandments of God. So these are the 144,000 in Revelation 14. And they exist because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice as the author of our faith, and because of his example, and he finishes our faith. And so when Jesus comes back the second time, he comes back for the people who look for him. What does that mean? That means these are the group of people who have patience, the faith of Jesus, and keep the commandments of God. Because they looked to Jesus as the author and the finisher of their faith. Jesus as their sacrifice on the cross. Jesus as high priest and author and finisher of their faith on the right hand of the throne of God. And so when Jesus comes back the second time, he can say, you know what? I've blotted out the sins of these people because they ran the same race that I ran. They learned to look to me at every point in life. Or in other words, they follow me at every point in their life. So in the past, they committed sin. But I've forgiven their sins because they've accepted my sacrifice. And not only that, they learned how to follow me after I forgave their sins so that they followed me as forerunner and as author and finisher of, of their faith so that they walked the same way that I walk. They followed me at every step of the way. And it's interesting, when you get to Revelation 14, the 144,000 follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Why is that? Because these are the people who learn to follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth here on this earth. They looked to Jesus as the author and finished their faith every day and followed him wherever he led. So if you want to follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth in heaven, learn how to do it here on this earth. And if you say, you know what, I just don't know. This is really hard. How in the world can I lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset me? Well, hey, Jesus, he's the forerunner. He ran the same race. You're like, yeah, but Jesus was God. Yeah, but Hebrews tells us he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And because of that, in Hebrews 2, it says he is a merciful and faithful high priest because he knows what it's like to be in our shoes. It says he was made in all things like his brethren. So you may say, you know, this is just, there's no way I can run the race that Christ ran. Actually, Hebrews says, yes, you can. He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. So come boldly to the throne of grace and he will help you. And the good news in the book of Hebrews, as we go through it, is this. We see the characteristics of Christ that qualify him to be our high priest. And what we see about Christ as our high priest is that he is merciful. And we all need mercy, amen? We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Christ is merciful. But he's also faithful because he will help us to get to the end of the race. He will finish our faith. That's faithfulness. 
faithfulness is not saying, okay, I'll forgive your sins and then, you know, you're on your own now. Try to get through this life and see if you can do it. No. He says, I, pa I went through your experience. I passed through your shoes and I, I can help you as well. So when, we, when you get to Hebrews 9:28, there's so much in there. And so many times we just read verse 28 and say, oh, that's nice. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation, praise the Lord. And we miss the meaning of that passage. Christ was offered to bear our sins, praise the Lord. He died for our sins. Where would we be without his sacrifice? And praise the Lord that there will be a group of people who look to him, who see him as the author and finisher of our faith, who run the same race that he ran, so that we can have the same experience that he had in his humanity. And those are the type of people that he's going to come back for the second time without sin, unto salvation. Praise God for salvation. So... <clears throat> Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. We will continue now in chapter 10 and see if we can get a few verses out of the way here. Chapter 10 is pretty straightforward. <clears throat> Starting in verses 1 and 2, it says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. So here's what we see. The law having a shadow of good things to come. The shadow of good things to come is speaking of the ceremonial law, which was a shadow of Christ to come. So it was not the very image and so with the sacrifices of animals, which they offered year by year continually, that includes the Day of Atonement service, year by year continually. You had the daily service and the yearly service. So year by year continually, and sure this would include the daily service as well, but as well the, the yearly service, which occurred year by year, it never took away their sin. And it says, you know, if it had taken their sins, don't you think they would have just ceased to do those sacrifices? But they had to keep doing it because their sins had never been taken away. Um, and if they had been purged, they would ha have had no more conscience of sin. The word for purge here is related to the blotting out of sin. No more conscience of sin is no more memory of sin because there would be no more record. So all Paul is saying here is, look, the earthly sacrifices of the earthly sanctuary could not take away the sins of God's people. But remember, what do we just see in Hebrews 9? It says, now once in the end of the world hath Christ appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the blood of bulls and goats, they could not take away sin. But Christ's sacrifice with his blood could take away sin. So... Continuing on in verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Notice verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So there you have it. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It was an image, it was a shadow of things to come, but it was just pointing to the efficacy of the blood of Christ that does take away our sin. And so pretty straightforward. 
the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. The one thing that I, I'll point out is this. Notice that the word perfect is used in verse 1, and we have the concept of taking away of sin in verse 4. What this is saying here, the, the context of the word perfect is in relation to the taking away of sin or the blotting out of sin. So if your sins have been blotted out, your record is perfect. If your sins have been taken away, there's no record of your sin. In the eyes of God, you're perfect. That is um, what, what Paul is talking about here. And you have no more memory or conscience of sin. It's interesting when you get to the end of Hebrews 11, and we'll get there at some point, it talks about how those who died in faith have received not the promise that they without us should not be made perfect. So when God has a group of people in Hebrews 12 that we just studied who run with patience the race set before them, look to Jesus the author and finish their faith, and they have the faith of Jesus at the end of the day, then those who died in faith will receive the promise they will be made perfect, or in other words, their sins will be taken away or blotted out in the judgment. And until that happens, until God has a group of people who finish the race, then the record of sins of God's people in Hebrews 11 remain. But they have the promise of it being taken away. They're just waiting. So continuing on, verse 5. So if the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin, what does? Verse 5 gets into this. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And this is being cited from Psalms chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. So God is saying, look, I don't really have any pleasure in these burnt offerings or sacrifices. Um, so Christ comes with a body. And in verse 7, he says, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. So when Christ came in a human body, he came to do the will of God. And if you go, go to Psalms chapter 40, verse 8, he says, I delight to do thy will, yea, thy law is within my heart. So what is God's will? It's his law written in our hearts. Now that's interesting because when you get to Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about God's law being written in the hearts and minds. That's the new covenant. So Jesus, in a human body, demonstrated a new covenant life. He says, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, this is Psalms, to do thy will, O God. And in Psalms chapter 40, he says, I delight to do thy will, yea, thy laws within my heart. So what's God's will? It's his law. And Christ delights to do God's law. And in the new covenant, he writes his law into the hearts and minds of his people. So Christ gives us the example of doing God's will. Continuing on in verse 8, above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. So again, he's saying, I don't have pleasure in the ceremonial service that never took away sin. It was supposed to point to my sacrifice, but you didn't understand it. So then in verse 9, he says, then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Now notice this. 
Christ took away the first that he may establish the second. What are we talking about here? We've already seen this in Hebrews 8. It's the covenants. Christ is the mediator of a better covenant, and he writes his law into our hearts and minds. So when Christ comes to do God's will, he demonstrates that it's possible to have God's law written in your heart and mind and to live that in a human body with human flesh and blood, with human tendencies. Christ shows it is possible to do God's will as a human being. And because he did that, the first covenant was taken away and the second covenant was established, which is the new covenant, which is a better covenant. And the better covenant is God's law written on our hearts and minds, and that is doing God's will. That's what Jesus did. So, he taketh away the first that he may establish the second, verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Now notice, we're sanctified by the offering of the body of Christ. People like to talk about being justified by Christ's sacrifice, but notice, we're also sanctified by his sacrifice. So you can't separate justification and sanctification in the salvation process. If you're sanctified by Christ's offering, how does that not have to do with salvation? Because Christ's sacrifice has to do with our salvation. And we're sanctified by the offering of his body. So I'm thankful for sanctification also. Um, if, if you think about it, if you went to a group of prisoners and said, Jesus saves you, he forgives you, and they say, praise the Lord, but I don't want to, if I leave this prison, I don't want to fall into the same things that got me in here in the first place. I want a God who can save me from what got me in here. And so God, the good news about the gospel is, and we as Seventh-day Adventists have a gospel to offer that will give hope and strength to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. So yes, they receive forgiveness, but they also receive power. They receive sanctification. Verse 11, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So the earthly sanctuary and the priest, they could not take away sin. They could not blot out sin. Verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Next week, we are going to study what it means for the enemies of Christ to be made his footstool. Why is he sitting till his enemies be made his footstool? Didn't he just finish it on the cross when he offered himself as a sacrifice for sins forever? Why are we still here? The answer is because his enemies have not been made his footstool. We'll study that concept next week. But thank God for a better priest with a better covenant and a better sacrifice.